0: Today we come to the book of Zephaniah, we are doing an overview of the minor prophets and we are in this the ninth of the twelve minor prophets and remember they're not minor because they're unimportant, they're minor prophets because they are short and uh, this one today is only three chapters. Last week we concluded the book of Habakkuk which is one of my favorites and it ends on a very glorious triumphant note that we looked at last week. And we find Habakkuk as he's anticipating the coming invasion of the Babylonians to bring judgment upon the people of God in Judah that in in light of what is coming it's going to be a dark day it's going to be a hard day but we find his heart as one who's trusting in his God, but not just trusting in his God, but rejoicing in his God. And we read in verse 17 of of, of Habakkuk 3, Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice. I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. Here's this kind of grand finale of this book, a wonderful ending. And we find his heart, even though it is perplexed and there are hard things, he's trusting in the Lord and he's also rejoicing in his God. I was able in part to see this fleshed out this week. As I was with Jim and Mary, as they returned back to their house that had been burning and the firemen had got it pretty well out, by the time they got there, they were not home. And one of the things that Mary said to me, the first thing she said as she looked at her house, she said, it's just things. It's just things. And then after the firemen were leaving, we gathered in a circle, there were several there, and... I said, let's pray together, and we held hands, and I was about ready to start praying, and Jim started praying, and he was thanking God for his care and provision for them. No one was hurt, and his trust, his hope, their hope in the Lord, they were able to rejoice even at a time like this, and I was so blessed and encouraged and helped by that. And so this book ends with a hymn of rejoicing, a song at the end of this book, uh, some dark things that are yet coming. And uh, it is a very big highlight. But there's something even more amazing than this when we get to the book of Zephaniah. The 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 way in which this book is going to end, we've read it, or Ken read it for us before, we see Habakkuk, the prophet, rejoicing and singing. When we get to chapter 3, what we find is our God rejoicing and singing over his, over his people. I think that's even more amazing than what we see in the book of Habakkuk. Here is God rejoicing and singing over his people, and we'll get to that in a minute. So here is a, another book in which we have God's sounding warnings, about his coming judgment upon the sins of his people who have broken covenant with him, who have despised him, and God is going to bring judgment upon them. And so it's heavy again on woes and judgment and gloom that is yet ahead, the judgment of God that is coming. But it ends with singing and rejoicing and one of the greatest, sweetest love songs in the universe. This is the greatest Love song of love songs. But we begin, first of all, by looking at the judgment on the nations and Jerusalem. And we see this in chapters 1 and 2 through chapter 3, verse 8. This is Zephaniah who is writing this. And like most of the prophets, we don't know a lot about them individually. But we thank God for what they have given to us in the word of God. But one of the things that we note in verse 1 about Zephaniah, it says the word of the Lord came to Zephaniah, the son of Cushai, the son of Gedaliah, and the son of Amariah, son of Hezekiah, in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah. One of the things that we note is there is a rather large genealogy that is given of this man Zephaniah. Uh, he went to An- We could go to Ancestry.com and, and here's his genealogy that is given to us. And I think the reason that it is a larger one, most of the other prophets don't have a genealogy or it's just the father's name that is given. But here it goes back uh, several generations and I think with reason because we find that he's from the royal family, it would appear he is in the line of Hezekiah, King Hezekiah. He is the great great grandfather of Zedekiah, so he or zephaniah and so what we find is that he is one who is of the royal family. Now he is not of the royal line in terms of being on the throne, uh, but he was one of this uh, 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 one of hezekiah 's other sons, Manasseh was Hezekiah's son that came to the throne. He was a very, very wicked king, one of the worst in Judah. And uh, Hezekiah had been a good king. His son Manasseh was a wicked king. He offered his sons on the altars to the pagan gods, Um, very wicked king. But he had other sons, and he is from that line. So he is familiar with life in Jerusalem, with the royal family, And uh, some of those things come out in his book. But he is reigning during the days of Josiah, or his ministry, it says, is in the days of Josiah. Josiah was another of the good kings. There were only eight good kings in Judah, and Hezekiah was one, and also Josiah. And if you remember, he came to the throne when he was eight years of age. Do we have any kids here that are eight years of age? Do we have one? Who is it? Korah? Korah is eight years of age. Can you imagine her being the queen? Or in this case, it's the king. But Josiah came to the throne when he was eight years of age. He ruled for 31 years. There was a time in which they found the law of the Lord in the temple. It it had gotten lost there. And they brought it out, and they're reading it, and Josiah begins to bring about reforms. He cleans out the temple. The temple was full of idols from pagan gods, and so he cleans house. He calls for reformation. And so this is a time in which Josiah, uh, Zephaniah ruled. Uh, Josiah ruled from 640. You've got a diagram in your notes there. He was from 640 to 609. And remember that Jerusalem falls in 586. So this is right on uh, the the beginning of the judgment that is going to fall upon the Babylonians. But there was this brief there was this brief time of reform. It was short lived. But uh, this is the time in which Zephaniah ruled. So this is the times he probably ruled prior to this reformation that Josiah brought in. The reformation started about 621 and uh, so this probably preceded that and it probably was used by God to help that reform that Josiah brought about. Secondly this morning we see Zephaniah teaches us that God is active and he is the judge of all the world. This is something that comes out The the pronouns that are used, there are numerous pronouns that are used of God in the book of Zephaniah, just in chapter 1. I think there's 11 in reference to the Lord. He is the one who is active in this world. A lot of people think that God's sitting up in heaven and he's not at all involved in the world. Kind of like the deist view that God created the world, just kind of flung it out there and he has nothing to do with it. But that's not the case. And as believers, as I mentioned last week, we have a worldview that is given to us from the scriptures that helps us to understand the world in which we live, and our God is active in things that are going on in our world. We're thankful for the scriptures that give us insight. I was reading Psalm 19 this week, and it reminds us that the word of God makes the the simple to be wise. We are foolish and ignorant, left to ourselves, but we have been given the word of God. It rejoices the heart. It promotes joy and hope for God's people. It enlightens our eyes. It gives us twenty twenty vision as we live in a fallen world, and we can be very thankful for that. So God is active in the world, and we see this as we read through the book of Zephaniah. But we also see that he is the judge of all the earth. He is the judge. Notice how it begins, verse 2. I will utterly sweep away everything. The I is referring to Yahweh. I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will sweep away man and beast. I will sweep away the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea and the rubble with the wicked. I will cut off mankind from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. We get a feel for the weightiness of this this book and the message that Zephaniah was to speak about. There is judgment that is coming, and this judgment is coming from the Lord himself. Now, it doesn't tell us the instrument that God is going to use at this particular time, as Habakkuk is told, that it will be the Chaldeans or the Babylonians. But behind that is God himself. He is the one who is bringing this judgment. And so we see as we look at chapter 2 that it is going to include not just Judah, but it's going to include her neighbors. In chapter 2, we see that Philisti- uh, the Philistians, Philistines are mentioned and the cities that are associated with them. And then there is Moab, and there is Ammon, and there is Ethiopia down in Egypt, and then Assyria. Assyria has not yet fallen to the uh, Assyrians, or excuse me, to, uh, to the Babylonians. So this is predating the fall of Assyria. But the Lord says that he is going to do this. And notice chapter 2, verse 12, that this is the Lord who is going to bring judgment on the Cushites, They shall be slain by my sword. Again, this is the Lord who is bringing this judgment. But mixed in with this judgment that's going to come to the nations surrounding Judah when the Babylonians come in is also Judah. That Judah is going to be judged. They are going to be chastened by the Lord. So back in chapter 1, it mentions, again, some of their sins. We've seen this already in uh, books that we've already looked at. What we find is in Israel, among God's people, that he has made a covenant with, that they are to love the Lord their God with all their heart. They're not to have other gods. What do we find but idol worship? There is idolatry, and there is this even syncretism where they are combining the worship of Yahweh with the gods of the pagans around them. And as I already mentioned, in the temple, Josiah, when he has his reform, is taking out idols that had been brought in. Baal worship was connected with the worship of Jehovah. And so we see this uh, syncretistic worship uh, there in the house of the Lord. And so... There is the sin of idolatry. And then we see that there is, for many, just complete apostasy. Chapter 1, verse 6. Those who have turned back from following the Lord, who do not seek the Lord or do not even inquire of him. These are the days in which uh, Zephaniah is ministering. And then we see also there's just, on the hearts of many of them, just complacency and indifference. Notice verse 12. At that time, I will search Jerusalem with lamps, and I will punish the men who are complacent, those who say in their hearts, the Lord will not do good, nor will he do ill. Notice the Lord says, I'm going to search Jerusalem, and it uses the imagery of a lamp, and we use lights to to go into the dark places. God doesn't need a lamp, but it's helping us to understand that God's going to come and he's going to search out and he's going to expose sin and he will bring judgment. And here in this verse, it talks about them being complacent. Those who say in their hearts, the Lord will not do good, nor will he do ill. There's this attitude in their hearts, you know, God's not concerned about how we live. He's not going to do good. He's not going to do ill. We can do what we want. And that's much of the mentality of many people living in our day, isn't it? God's indifferent to what's going on here. We can live as we want. The scoffers in 2 Peter 3 that Peter writes about says, where's the promise of his coming? You you Christians, you talk about the coming of the Lord and about judgment Where's the promise of his coming? Everything's continued as it has from the beginning. And Peter says, no, wait a minute. No, it doesn't. There was a time, many times in history, where God has stepped in and brought judgment. But many live with that illusion that if God was going to do something, he would have done something. And so we can live and do as we please. this was the attitude of many of them of the day. Chapter 3 lists some more of the sins of Judah. Chapter 3, verse 1, Woe to her who is rebellious and defiled the oppressing city. She listens to no voice. She accepts no correction. She does not trust in the Lord. She does not draw near to her God. Her officials within her are roaring lions. Her judges are evening wolves that leave nothing till the morning. Her prophets are fickle, treacherous men. Her priests profane what is holy and do violence to the law. And Notice verse 5. The Lord within her, he's in her midst and he is righteous. He is holy and he is going to judge. He is holy and he is in the midst of her. And he will judge. What's interesting is we see this, that God speaks about the judgment that will come upon these pagan nations, but mixed right in with it, intertwined with it, is the judgment that he's going to bring upon his own people who have turned their back and apostatized and turned from him, broken covenant with him that he had made at Mount Sinai. And judgment is coming. And I think it's almost like this. The Lord is saying... I really don't see any difference between you and your pagan neighbors. You look just like them. And how sad that is. So many times what we see in our own day, don't we? Many people who profess to be followers of Christ, but they look just like the world around them. Christ has called us to be separate, to be set apart unto the Lord. So we see here, thirdly, we see Zephaniah teaches us about the day of the Lord, back in chapter one. The day of the Lord is a term used often in the prophets, and it is a day speaking about God's vengeance against his enemies, where he will step in and he will bring judgment. It is also often referred to as a day of salvation. God judges, and also the day of the Lord is a day of salvation for his people. But here it is used in terms of judgment against Judah, chapter 1, verse 7. Be silent before the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is what? It is, it's near. The day of the Lord is near. The Lord has prepared a sacrifice and consecrated His priest, the imagery I think here is like an offering, a sacrifice that Israel would offer on an uh, an altar. It's going to be destroyed. It's going to be consumed by fire. And so Judah and Jerusalem, the day of the Lord is near and God is going to bring judgment upon them. Chapter one, verse 14, again, the great day of the Lord is near. And hastening fast, the sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. And notice the last phrase, the mighty man cries aloud there. When this day comes, even the most brave and those mighty of men, they will cry out. It will be a day of mourning. It will be a day of great judgment. It's referred to in verse 15 as a day of wrath. A day of wrath, that is, a day of distress and anguish, a day of ruin and devastation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. Now, these are themes that we have seen in all of the prophets. They're very weighty and heavy subjects that these prophets had to deliver. They're often referred to as a a burden. Here's this heavy message that I have to deliver to you about this day of the Lord, this coming judgment of God. But what we see that often these things that we're looking at in the past are really kind of a picture of things that are yet to come. There's a day that is yet to come, the day of the Lord. One commentator said in the book of prophetic literature, we often find a prophecy about the near future, mixed together with the more distant and the final apocalyptic elements. And so when we look back in history, we see the flood of Noah In the days of Noah. We see the judgment that came upon Sodom and Gomorrah. We see this day of the Lord that will come upon the world, that little world there of that time and Judah. It's just telling us there's a greater day coming. This is just a preview of the great day of the Lord. When Jesus Christ the judge will return and he will come and he will bring judgment. And I think as we read through this book we we are given hints of that, pictures of that. That there's yet a day that is coming in which the judge of all the earth will come and he will judge. Now there's a word that is given to the faithful believers in chapter 3 chapter 3 verse 3 or excuse me chapter 2 verse 3 as he is writing he says talking about this day that is going to come seek the lord verse 3 all you humble of the land who do his just commands seek righteousness seek humility perhaps you may be hidden on the day of the anger of the lord What are the people of God who truly know him and are believers at this time, a remnant of people, what are they to do? Seek the Lord, trust him, obey him, be faithful to him. And perhaps when this day comes, he will preserve your life, he will care for you, and he did that for many. You think about uh, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. The Lord preserved them, he took them into Judah and many, or excuse me, to Babylon, along with many others. But the call is given to them to be found faithful, faithful to God in the midst of a dark, dark time. I think the Lord would say the same to us as we see our culture changing and maybe some ways we are seeing, I think, the judgment of God upon our nation. How are we to live? We are to seek the Lord. We're not to go into hiding, but we are to seek the Lord. We are to be faithful to him. We are to seek after righteousness. We are to be humble, and we are to be faithful to him in the times in which we live. So here is a judgment that comes upon the nations and Jerusalem at that time, but as we get to chapter 3, we see, secondly this morning, hope for the nations and Jerusalem. God is in the midst of his people for the purpose of salvation. Yes, he's bringing judgment, but what we often find in In following after judgment, there is salvation. God is bringing about new things, just as it was in the days of Noah. God brought judgment upon the world, but he brought Noah through that world with his family and began a new world and a new humanity. And we see these themes throughout all the Bible. And uh, ultimately, in the last day, that will be the case as well. So here is hope in the midst of this fallen and broken world. As we come to chapter 3, we, we notice a dramatic shift that is made. Verse 8 is talking about this judgment that is coming. when God is going to judge. Therefore, wait for me, declares the Lord, for the day when I rise, uh, rise up to seize the prey, for my decision is to gather nations, to assemble kingdoms, to pour out upon them my indignation, all my burning anger, for in the fire of my jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed. This day of judgment's coming. There's another day of judgment coming. But right after that, notice a dramatic shift. For at that time, I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. What we find from here to the end of the book now is this hymn. And this celebration and this rejoicing in what God himself is going to do. Judgment becomes the prelude to restoration. Not only for Israel, for Judah, but also for the nations, as I hope we will see. And what we find as we look at this little book, as well as the other books of the Minor Prophets, is there is a remnant. And what we find here is a twofold remnant. A remnant is that there will be a people from among the descendants of Abraham, who will be a true and faithful remnant. Isaiah tells us that unless the Lord had left us a remnant, we would have become like Sodom and Gomorrah. God has always had a remnant among his people in Israel, a faithful remnant, a true seed of Abraham. And Romans 11 tells us, it's a remnant according to God's gracious election. There were always a people who belonged to him, who followed him, and were faithful to him. And we see that here in this book as well. Look at chapter 2 and verse 7. The seacoast shall become the possession of the remnant of the house of Judah, on which they shall graze and in the houses of Ascalon they shall lie down at evening for the Lord their God will be mindful of them and restore their fortune. So after the judgment there is a remnant that are going to possess and and have the blessings God has promised. We see it again in verse 9, therefore as I live declares the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Moab shall become like Sodom and The Ammonites like Gomorrah, a land possessed by nettles and salt pits and a waste forever. But notice this, the remnant of my people shall plunder them and the survivors of my nation shall possess them. And then verse 11, the Lord will be awesome against them. He He will famish all the gods of the earth and to him shall bow down each in its place in all the lands of the nations. God's going to have a remnant. He's going to restore blessings, the fortunes that were promised to God's people. But another remnant we find in this book is a remnant from among the nations. Not just from among Judah and Israel, but among the nations, God will have a remnant, a people for himself. I think we see this in chapter 3, verse 9. Notice, for at that time I will change the speech of Notice the peoples, not the people, but the peoples. And it will be a pure speech that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. From beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshippers, the daughter of my dispersed ones, shall bring my offerings. On that day you shall not be put to shame because of the deeds by which you have rebelled against me. For then I will remove from your midst your proud, exultant ones, and you shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain. There is going to be a a great change. And there are people from the nations that will enjoy and be a part of the blessings that will be known by this remnant of the people of God. No more proud people there. There will be a change of heart, a change of speech. I think this is looking at the grace of God in the new covenant as he he brings about regenerating grace and saves people and changes them. And this, again, is all by the grace and the work of God. Some of these words of Isaiah, Isaiah 65, 1, I was sought by those who did not ask for me. I was found by those who did not seek me. I said, here I am to a nation that was not called by not my name. Brothers and sisters, I think that's a reference to us. We were those people. We were outside of the scope of, you know, Abraham's descendants. But by his grace, we who were not a people have been made to be a people, a remnant from among the nations. Isaiah sixty-six eighteen: I will gather all nations and tongues, and they shall come and they shall see my glory. Thank God that after judgment, there is a remnant, a remnant of Israel, a remnant of the nations as well. And then we see not just a twofold remnant, but we see, and this is the best part, I think, that there's a twofold rejoicing. First of all, we see God's people rejoicing in their God. Verse 14, sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel, rejoice and exalt with all your heart. O daughter of Jerusalem, God is in your midst. Here is a picture of the day that is to come, and we are to rejoice. There, there is the call for rejoicing and singing. God is in the midst of His people. Verse fifteen: He has taken away the judgments against you. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The king of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. It's looking to a new day, isn't it? And as you think about that, there is to be rejoicing. One of the things that should mark God's people is that they are a singing people. That we sing praises to our God. If you're not a singer, you can learn to sing. And to rejoice in your God. This is a gift that God has given to us. This is a way that we express our worship to him. And it should be a joyful singing aloud of the things that he has promised to his people. And he goes on to give us more reasons why we should rejoice. Um, Verse 17. The Lord your God is in your midst. He is a mighty one who will save. He is a mighty one. This is a picture of a warrior, and he is in your midst. He is with you. This mighty one is with you. And often when we think about high-ranking officials in the, in the army, they're usually, you know, in the general quarters with the other generals. They're not usually with the privates, but not this one. It's kind of like the president of Ukraine. He wasn't going to leave his country. He wasn't going to leave his capital. He was going to stay there with the people in the midst of the battle. And here it is, this one, this warrior is with us. He is in our midst. He is with us. And we thank God for that. Here's this beautiful picture that is given to us. And so here is the king who is with us that is referred to earlier. I am with you. I'm in your midst. But then we read this in verse 17. This is amazing. The singing is not done. Here is the Lord himself rejoicing over his people. This this is amazing. This is wonderful. This God, he will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love as we think about the love of God and his kindness and his grace to his people, there is a contentedness, there is a quietness that we come to know as we understand more and more about this love that is incomprehensible to us. But he will quiet you in his love. He rejoices over you with gladness. And then this amazing statement, he will exalt over you, Not just with singing, but what? With loud singing. The Lord sings over his people. Jeremiah 32. The promise is given when God says, I'm going to take you out of the land, but then there's the promise. I will bring you back and I'm going to make an everlasting covenant with you. He says at the time, I will rejoice, I will rejoice in doing them good. And then these words of Isaiah sixty two five, listen to this for as a young man marries a woman, so shall your sons marry you, and as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. 13 days, Chase is going to be looking at his bride. And this, I think, will be his expression as well. He will rejoice. If you've been at weddings, you often, you know, you're waiting for the bride to come in and you watch the groom down there. And you can tell when the, when the doors are open and she enters the room, you can see it on the face of the groom, can't you? He sees his bride in her beautiful dress. And what does he do? But he rejoices. And so it is of our God that he rejoices over his people with loud singing. But, you know, we might say to ourselves, how can this be? How can he rejoice over me? Doesn't he know me? Do you know the things that I have done? Do you know the things that I've said? Do you know the secret thoughts that are often in my mind, in my heart? Do you know often the twisted motives, seeking to get my own way, seeking to get my own glory? Do you not know of my wanderings, my backslidings? Do you not know the words that are often not full of grace, but they're harsh, they're sharp, they're judgmental? Do you not know my jealousy and my coveting of what others have? Do you not know of idols that often are in my heart? And even the unbelief and the doubt that is often there, my backslidings, my wonderings, do you not know? The psalmist tells us, doesn't he, in Psalm 139, the Lord knows all about us. He knows what we're going to say before we even say it. He knows all about us. How can this be that he would rejoice over us, knowing us as we are? Well, I would say to you it's because of Christ. He chose us in Christ. He spared not his own son for us to bear our iniquity, our sin in his body on the tree. He turned away the wrath of God himself being forsaken by God in our place. He has made us alive together with Christ. We are accepted in the beloved one. So when he sees us, he sees us united to Jesus in his finished work. And he rejoices in his son, doesn't he? Three times. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And when he sees his people with all their faults, he sees them united to Christ. And he sings over them loudly. It's hard for us to comprehend that, isn't it? There was one commentator, I think it was Matthew Henry, that he said, no, it was Spurgeon. He loves me even when I cannot love myself. He still loves me. He loves me even when I cannot love and I do not love myself. And Matthew Henry says that God loves you and he loves to love you. He loves you and he loves to love you. These are verses hard for us to comprehend, isn't it? As we are aware of our own brokenness and fallenness. But this is the amazing grace of God that we are united to Christ and he loves his son and he loves those who are united to him. We are accepted in the beloved uh, the beloved one, and he rejoices over us. With loud singing. Thanks be to our God. Spurgeon said, the Lord will rejoice over thee with singing. Think of the great Jehovah singing. Can you imagine it? It is possible to conceive of the deity breaking into song, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost together singing over the redeemed. God is so happy in the love which he bears to his people That he breaks the eternal silence and sun and moon and stars with astonishment. They hear God chanting a hymn of joy. And if he sings. We ought to sing. May God make it to be true of us. And if you're here today without Christ. There's the day of the Lord that is yet to come. And the. And the call of the gospel is to flee from the wrath that is to come and flee to Jesus Christ. Call upon him. Today is the day of salvation. That you might be united to this one who has already borne the wrath of God in the place of sinners. That you might be forgiven and accepted by him and know this peace and this joy that he alone gives. I invite you to take your hymn book in closing, if you will.